Hello, and welcome to the Impact for Breakfast podcast series. Impact for Breakfast is an informal network of foundations, funds, venture philanthropy, and intermediary organizations with a common focus on social enterprise, entrepreneurship, and impact investing. Relative Impact has the pleasure of being the Impact for Breakfast chapter hosts in four cities across three continents, and we look forward to sharing one of the recent discussions with you now. start with a, a small insight on my personal journey, how I got into this whole impact investing thing, and then uh, go big picture, uh, you know, the big trends, the big challenges on a planetary scale, uh, and then bring it back to Africa and very tangible solutions, end up with maybe a few uh, proposals for what action you can take in your community or with your organization uh, to move forward on, on the path to impact. Uh, so on a, on a personal front, I grew up in Geneva, but my family is originally from Bolivia on my mother's side in Latin America and Iran in the Middle East from uh, on my father's side and in both cases uh, you know uh, this is this is a, a very short summary of a long family history but essentially there were revolutions in both countries that led each family in its own time to move to um, a land of asylum and refuge that is Switzerland uh, and they were very fortunate to be able not just to move there but to stay there establish themselves and create a new um, a new life for them in Switzerland. And so I grew up with my sister in Geneva, um, but we were always taught to care about the fate of people in poor countries and in contexts where people don't really have the means to live up to the full measure of their potential. Um, in, in, in my father and my mother's case, it was through diaspora philanthropy. So we would raise money in Switzerland and Europe among our friends um, to help with charitable projects in, in, in Bolivia and in the Middle East. Um, as I grew up, went through university, and then uh, started my career in banking, I realized that there were other instruments that we could use uh, to achieve sustainable development purposes. Um, and of course, uh, growing, growing up in a, in a Swiss context, uh, Switzerland is, is very well known for a number of nonprofit initiatives and organizations like the Red Cross. It's a headquarters to one of the five headquarters in the world to, to the UN, uh, to the UNHCR, the Refugee Agency. Um, so we're constantly exposed in Switzerland to the deficiencies of, of the world system and, and the consequences for its most vulnerable groups and also most, most vulnerable um, communities and environments. And um, Switzerland is also very lucky in the sense that it manages a lot of money on a per capita basis, right? Um, we, we manage around $8 trillion uh, worth of uh, investment capital. Um, the latest numbers in, in July of this year, PwC estimated there was more than $100 trillion in the world for investment purposes managed by institutions, right? Just to give you a sense of the scale, out of that $100 trillion, uh, there's less than um, $1.5 invested with a measurable impact, right? So it means that roughly in 99% of the cases, we're making investment decisions without knowing what the consequences of these decisions are going to be. And, and that's, of course, a very poor framework for good decision-making and for good risk management, and ultimately to generate profits for people and planet. Um, if you look at, at, at the traditional model of sustainable development, uh, we are all familiar with uh, the expectation that the public sector should provide to, to a certain extent for the public interest. Um, but sadly, on one hand, you have a limited amount of capital from the public sector. It's roughly around $140 billion per year that is given in, in development assistance uh, by, by OECD countries that are the biggest 
donors in the world. Um, and if you look at private philanthropy, that's often a complement to government uh, subsidies and interventions. Uh, you're looking at between 250 and, and 300 billion per year, right? Now, the United Nations have estimated, well, when they launched the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, that's uh, 17 goals to help the planet transition to a more sustainable type of economy worldwide and a more socially inclusive um, model of society. When you look at the Sustainable Development Goals, initially the UN put the price tag at about $1.5 trillion um, that were required per year of investment to achieve that transition by 2030, right? Um, but due to inaction and an increasing cost of inaction, now the UN have revised this estimate and they de they've determined that we need more than $4 trillion per year for the remaining years until 2030. And that price tag is just going to increase, right? So one thing to remember is if I don't take any action, there is a price to that. There is a consequence to that. We can measure it. And it's going to just go up and up and up, right? Uh, and maybe initially the consequences of my inaction uh, will not be suffered by me, right? They might be suffered uh, by someone else. But ultimately, it's going to catch up to us. And we're seeing that with climate change. We're seeing that with plastic uh, pollution. We're seeing that with uh, you know, the increasing levels of conflict around the world that leads to migration and uh, involuntary migration and, and refugees. Um, and so in, in essence, what we're proposing here with Impact Investing is a new instrument that any one of us can include in our portfolios, whether it's your private and, and personal portfolio, whether it's your foundation, your corporate organization, uh, or your asset management, uh, or even your pension fund. You can include Impact Investing today. Uh, and, and, and the proof is in the pudding, right? We have one and a half trillion of impact assets that have been invested worldwide by all types of institutions, right? You look at European and American pension funds, they've invested for impact. You look at nonprofit foundations with endowments, they've invested for impact. You look at wealthy families, they've invested for impact. Corporate ventures, like, you know, from, from Nestle all the way down to smaller ones, have invested for impact. So there is no excuse anymore to say, well, I'm not finding the right opportunity or the opportunities are too risky or too small. If you think that, it's because you don't have the right information, right? Today it is possible without any further delay to invest for impact in a way that suits your own personal aspirations for risk, return, and, and uh, an impact. Now, um, the basic observation here is that the public sector and the philanthropic sector do not have the capital. Supposing that they use their capital perfectly with 100% efficiency and got all the results that they wanted, it's still not enough to finance the transition to a globally sustainable economy and, a, and an inclusive society, right? And the gap is massive, right? Because we're looking at, on one hand, half a trillion dollars per year that's available, and on the other, a need that is increasing currently at more than $4 trillion per year. The only way to bridge that gap is to capture capital markets, right? There is enough capital in the world, more than $100 trillion, so we need to be able to capture uh, capital markets, and one of the ways to do that is through impact investing, because with impact investing, and maybe just a, a short note on definition, according to the global association uh, that is, has emerged as a flagship in industry association for us. It's the Global Impact Investing Network, abbreviated GIN, right? The Global Impact Investing Network. So the definition of impact investing is very simple. It's profitable investments. Uh, now there's a range in, in terms of profits. Some of them are risk-adjusted profits. Some of them are concessionary finance profits. But you, you invest with impact expecting to get your money back with a profit. 
you have, when you make the investment, the intention to foster a positive impact, and you're able to measure that impact, right? So it's very three, uh, three very simple criteria to understand what impact investing is, and that's how we get to the tally of uh, close to 1.5 trillion invested so far. Um, so impact investing, because it is uh, operating on the, on the basis of, uh, of a aspiration for profit, is able to mobilize and channel uh, the private capital markets, right? And in fact, we've seen that there's not really any limits to the scale of impact investing. Impact investing might become a very dominant form of investment, a very mainstream form of investment over the course of the next 20 years, right? That's, that's the way it's looking right now because it's the fastest growing segment of the financial industry in terms of number of products, number of managers, and volume of assets for the last 10 years. It's the fastest growing segment of the impact investment of the financial industry. Um, now, that doesn't mean that impact investing cannot work with the public sector interventions, with the private philanthropy. In fact, we love the collaborations across sectors, the partnership that foster innovation through blended finance, through catalytic capital. There's a lot of examples uh, abounding in, in that sense. But ultimately, um, what we're hoping for is, is to really transform the DNA of the financial industry so that it creates a better risk management framework that includes social and environmental risks and their impact on the bottom line, right? Now, the European Union has already created uh, a regulatory regime to that effect, right? It's called the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Requirements, SFDR. It was launched two years ago, and every year it's getting more sophisticated. And it's requiring all asset managers in Europe or anyone working with Europe to be very clear to their clients and stakeholders about which products are sustainable and which financial products are not. Right? And this has, in fact, led to sort of a cleaning up act. A lot of major uh, mainstream financial institutions who used to say this product is sustainable have now pulled back and are saying, well, actually, no, it's not sustainable according to the SFDR. This is just a regular product. And in fact, the range of our impactful products is much more than we thought. And that's a good thing, right? Because we want to avoid greenwashing, impact washing. We want to, as investors, as a client, I certainly want to know what I'm investing in. Right? I don't want to be investing in something that, that, per, per, that, 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 um, that is promoted as, as, as an impact product, and in the end I find out that it's actually doing harm. Right? So one of the core um, considerations of the SFDR in Europe is do no harm. Right? What, is a, what is the harm and what is the impact of every investment? We understand that it's a difficult balance to strike, but what matters the most for the decision makers and for the clients and investors is that we know what is happening with our money. And once we know, we can make uh, decisions according to our values, according to our risk profiles, et cetera, et cetera. Now, my point with the SFDR is the following. Um, you know, any one of us can decide to go 100% into impact. You can mobilize all your money, all your network, and you'll do a lot of good with that. But it's not enough, right? Because we're at a point where we're facing systemic challenges. Right? When you look at climate change, no single individual, no single organization, no single country can resolve it. Right? And it's the same thing for all the goals that are defined by the United Nations, the 17 goals. Um, so the last one is partnerships with all the others are related to particular themes or sectors. You've got gender equality, for example. You've got climate. You've got um, preserving uh, uh, environments on Earth and uh, at sea, uh, reducing inequality, fostering innovation and economic growth, etc. So all of these are massive opportunities and challenges. And 
And uh, there's, a, there's a personality of our industry called Ron Cohen, who's based in, in London. He's got 30 years of, of experience in venture capital and private equity. And most recently, he's created something called the Global um, Steering Group for Impact Investing, the GSG. And the GSG is, is a nonprofit that's supported by the G7, right, by you know, uh, the, the leading economies of the world. And um, what they are trying to do is create national advisory boards for impact investing. They have already created uh, these NABs, national advisory boards, in more than 30 countries. Uh, you've got actually one that was launched recently in, in South Africa, in Ghana, in, in Zambia, in Kenya. And these NABs, what they're trying to do is they're trying to create uh, an easier ecosystem at home for impact investing, right? Um, so they're engaging with the regulator uh, to make sure that we have a new definition of fiduciary duty that allows pension funds uh, to invest with impact and uh, that makes more transparent the range of opportunities that are available for impact investing. Now, why is that important? Because one of the key initiatives of the GSG and the NAB is um, that we need to change the way companies account for the value that they create, right? Uh, historically, we've focused primarily on financial value, um, and now we want to change the way that accounts are produced each year so that this uh, annual valuation or quarterly valuation of a company reflects also the social, environmental, and economic value that they create uh, or the negative impact that they have. And um, it looks like by 2030, global standards for accounting will have changed and uh, companies will be forced to reflect that new type of valuation uh, every year, which is a good thing, again, because uh, until we have proper reflection in all accounts of the social and environmental value we create or we destroy, then it's difficult for anyone to make uh, the right decisions on, on the path forward for your organization, your community, uh, or your company, right? Um, and the other thing that we need to look at is, is beyond our immediate scope into value chains, right? Because We've seen with the pandemic, for example, that everything is interconnected. Ultimately, the planet is just one big body of water and all the bodies of water are connected. Um, and so we need to think a little bit more ambitiously, but change starts with me, right? I make a decision to change what I'm doing, uh, and then I try to communicate that change and influence and inspire others to follow uh, my aspiration for change in my organization or my community. But beyond that, we need to look at value chains and country level change and that becomes a systemic consideration where you can only achieve change through partnership and collaboration uh, within one sector and across sectors, right? And that's one of the purposes uh, of, of the NABs, of the GSG, of impact investing as a whole. All right, now bringing it back to something a bit more tangible and more concrete. So by way of background, uh, the company I created, Alpha Mundi, um, has been impact investing for uh, 14 years now, and uh, we've invested about $120 million across 60 companies in Latin America. We have an investment team in Colombia and in Africa. Our investment team is in Kenya. Um, we've done it mostly through debt instruments, but we've also got about 25% of our capital deployed through equity-related instruments, uh, minority equity stakes primarily. And we have a nonprofit foundation that we created in 2017 to host technical assistance programs that are grant-based. So. Why do we have this range of, of instruments? Is because when we try to help a company grow, it's really helpful to be able to operate across the financial capital spectrum, right? And to have multiple instruments that fit the best need and the stage of growth of the company. Um, and we had to do that because 
uh, it was not possible to get the proper type of funding in most cases from banks, right? Banks in, in many countries uh, um, of Latin America or Africa are not very good at assessing SME risk, small medium enterprise risk, and, and, and delivering reasonable terms of funding, right? This usually happens when a company has already gone through the startup stage, the early stage, and is sufficiently de-risked that it can offer collateral to the bank in exchange for the funding, right? But in order to get to that point and even to grow further, you need a lot of equity and you need a lot of working capital that is a little bit more customized to the needs of a, of a small enterprise. And that's where impact investors usually come in. So in our case, 120 million investors, 60 companies. Um, on, on, on the debt side, we provide loans uh, typically for two to four years uh, duration, uh, ranging from $250,000 to $2 million, and with interest rates per year in dollars of 8 to 15%. This is nothing unusual. You'll find that a lot of the impact investors providing debt in, uh, in developing countries offer broadly the same terms, right? On the equity front, um, what we're looking at is to get into uh, an early stage, so an equity around Series A or Series B, and have the option to sell our stake at the next one or two rounds, right? Um, and, and here it's mostly to provide upside to those uh, investors who, through us, operate through debt, right? So our experience with equity has been mostly positive, uh, and we've delivered between 10 and 30% per year with our equity instruments. And separately from that, we've got the foundation. The foundation provides grants to companies, and these grants are used for a number of different purposes. Uh, one of them is product innovation. The second one is to test a new market segment or a new market, a new country. Uh, the third is to measure your impact for the first time and to create the data and the systems that help you measure your impact and report on it on a regular basis. Uh, we've given grants uh, for companies to take a look at their gender policies. Uh, very often, companies uh, are not aware that they have a lot of bias and a lot of gaps in policies to ensure um, you know, equality between gender and to empower women. This uh, is an important topic for a number of reasons. Um, as an investor myself, my primary reason is because if you have a company that has diversity in its leadership, in its governance, um, usually that company will be more profitable, more innovative, and more resilient in times of crisis because they take better deci decisions under pressure, right? Um, but there are other reasons. One of them is a moral argument that we should help women wherever we can. Uh, because they have not been um, given uh, the opportunities that they deserve uh, on the economic front. Uh, we saw that the pandemic, in fact, set back the clock on economic participation of women, and, um, and the World Economic Forum now estimates it'll take about 200 years to bridge the gender gap in the economy, uh, which is a very sad statistic. Now, if and when we are able to bridge that gender gap uh, on a worldwide basis, we'll be adding $12 tri trillion per year to global GDP. So it's a very clear um, incentive for all the investors and all the companies to uh, promote gender equality and women empowerment because you reduce your risk, you foster greater innovation, you improve your prospects of profitability, and ultimately you add economic value on the long term uh, to, to your economy. Um, the last thing that we use grants from the foundation for is uh, to pilot uh, credit facilities for consumers. Very often, uh, a product, for example, solar panels, will be too expensive for the average uh, African household to purchase upfront, especially if that household is in the low-income bracket, peri-urban areas, or agricultural areas. 
um, it can be that these packages are too, too expensive. So if you allow the consumer to pay over 12 to 24 months instead of upfront when they're at the shop, then you dramatically transform the accessibility of the product for, um, for, the, for the consumer. I'll give you one example from our practice. Alfamundi uh, was one of the, actually was the first institutional investor in a company called Phoenix International in Uganda. And Phoenix International uh, provided uh, solar uh, panel access to uh, rural uh, households. And you know, we first invested in 2012 uh, with a loan. Um, we, we earned about 15% of the time on, on the loan per year. So that was a good investment. We recovered all the loan. Over the course of um, many years, we participated and supported the company in different ways, through debt, through equity, and through grants. Um, and in 2018, uh, so six years after our, our investment, the company had delivered first-time renewable energy access to more than a million um, households in Uganda, which is, I think, a fantastic impact by itself. We had earned double digits across our investment instruments, right, between 10 and 20% per year. And um, the company was acquired by a multinational. Um, and that multinational preserved the program and expanded it to multiple African uh, markets. So it goes to show that you can start very small in impact uh, with a small enterprise. In this case, uh, the success of that enterprise was, um, was uh, in great part due to its uh, female CEO uh, who you know, solved all the issues uh, with, with great perseverance and, uh, and was able to bring a lot of very different stakeholders to the table for the transition to, to a multinational uh, environment. And, and there's no limit to scale. We know that from the first microfinance organization that was able to go uh, listed on a, on, a, on a stock exchange. That was Compartamos in Mexico. It started as an NGO, then became a, uh, a financial institution that was regulated, ultimately became listed. The, the, the IPO uh, amounted to about $350 million, right? And it was a great windfall for all those who had invested early in that, in that NGO. So my point is impact could lead to the next unicorn or zebra, however you want to call it, right? The next big thing in your country in a particular sector that's you know, continental in, in, in reach and scope, it could be an impact company, right? Um, and and uh, we have sufficient evidence now from the GIN, from the, the, the Global Impact Investing Network, that more than 80% of impact investors have achieved the profit or the return that they were looking for. And the other 20% have usually achieved a lower return than the risk warrants but on purpose, because they're going into either new sectors or difficult uh, environments such as post-natural disaster or post-conflict countries, right? So by and large, uh, the statistics show that impact investing pays off. Whatever the market, the sector, whatever your segment as an investor, you can find uh, a proper fund or product or direct investment opportunity for you to, to commit to. And um, it is the way of the future. You know, uh, in a way, those who are not impact investing today are not preparing themselves for the new regulatory requirements on risk management that are related to such things as climate change. Right? So it makes really a lot of sense for you to start looking at impact investing today. Thank you so much to Tim Raji for sharing so much of his story and journey with impact investing. We will include all the links and references we discussed today in the episode show notes. This has been an Impact for Breakfast podcast powered by Relative Impact. 
Subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. For more information about Relative Impact and the work we're doing, check out our website and sign up to our newsletter to get updates directly to your inbox.